Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you grab them and crank them open to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I have a message I'm very excited to share with you here today, and we'll look at that passage together here in just a few minutes, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Andy Stanley once said this, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. July 1st, 1898, Cuba, Spanish-American War. At the bottom of San Juan Hill sat Lieutenant Colonel Teddy Roosevelt. He had been ordered to take the heights. Uh, 750 Spanish soldiers had been ordered to hold the heights. Now, it was just a few weeks before that Teddy Roosevelt had resigned his civilian commission as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He wanted to join the active military. He said, someday I want to be able to explain to my boys why I did fight in the war or not why I didn't. And so on that June morning, Teddy Roosevelt uh, strapped on his boots and he led the Rough Riders Regiment up that hill under withering Spanish gunfire and ultimately on to victory. And for his courage, he was eventually awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. June 6, 1944, Normandy, France, World War II, off the most heavily fortified coast in history, and the troop transport ships sat Brigadier General Teddy Roosevelt, Jr. Now, President Roosevelt had four boys, four sons, and he wanted his boys to grow up to be men. And so he told them stories of courage and bravery, and he taught them how to shoot and how to hunt, how to uh, you know, ride a horse. And uh, when the Japanese ambassador was coming over to visit the United States, Teddy Roosevelt wired him and said, hey, bring your sumo champions. I want to teach my boys to wrestle. And so they did. Right there in the living room of the White House, they wrestled against these big sumo guys. And he instilled in those boys this, this passion for life and, and a sense of duty and leadership and patriotism. And that's why June 6, 1944, as the Allied forces prepared for the D-Day invasion, Brigadier General Teddy Roosevelt Jr. insisted on leading the invasion. Now, at first, his superiors in the Pentagon had denied his request. They said, no way, you're 57 years old. No other general is going ashore with the first wave of troops. It would be bad PR for Roosevelt died on the first day of the invasion. No way. But Teddy Roosevelt Jr. insisted. He said, it will steady the men to know that I am with them. And so eventually his superiors relented. And on that June morning, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. strapped on his boots. And he led the charge up that beach under withering German gunfire and ultimately on to victory. And for his courage, he was eventually awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, just like his father. Now, President Roosevelt accomplished many great things in his life, but one of his greatest was shaping the man in the next generation, his own son, who would lead in one of history's most decisive battles. Someone said that the legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next, and that's true. No matter how impressive your accomplishments are, your legacy is not complete until you have raised up the leaders in the next generation who will carry on your work after you are gone. When I was in high school, I, I ran track. I was the third leg of the four by 800 meter relay. And my coach used to tell us, boys, races are won and lost at the passing of the baton. No matter how hard I had run my leg of the race, my job was not done until I had successfully passed that baton to the next runner. There is no success without a successor. 
And one of the most important questions that you can ask yourself, whether it's at home or in the workplace or right here in your church, is this, am I passing the baton? Because your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Now, nobody understood that better than the Apostle Paul. You got your Bibles open there to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul, of course, is writing this letter. Paul, uh, apostle, preacher, missionary. I I have no idea how many pairs of sandals Paul had worn out, traipsing all over the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, planting churches, accomplished so many great things for God. And yet, Paul knew his ministry was not complete until he had raised up the next generation of kingdom leaders. And so Paul poured himself into young men like like Silas and Titus and Tychicus and John Mark, but the young man he had poured himself the most into was Timothy. Now, Timothy was the son that Paul had never had. In fact, there in in 2 Timothy chapter one, he uh, he will call Timothy my dear son, my beloved son. In fact, 15 years previous to this, uh, he had taken Timothy under his wing. Timothy was 15, 16 years old, and and he'd begun to travel with Paul. Paul poured himself into this young man, teaching him, training him, mentoring him. And now, uh, Timothy, probably about 30 years old, is the preacher at a church in Ephesus. And Paul is picking up his pen to write this letter. He is writing Timothy from prison. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, so Paul was like always in prison, wasn't he? And you would be right. Paul is what we would call a repeat offender. (laughs) Uh, He was always getting thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. But this time is different because this time Paul is seated on death row. He knows that in just a few short months, maybe weeks, he will be killed. Second Timothy was written in the shadow of the executioner's sword. And so in second Timothy chapter four, Paul will say, the time for my departure has come. He says, I I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul knows that races are won and lost at the passing of the baton. And so this letter of 2 Timothy, it marks the moment of exchange. Because his, his message in this whole letter is this. Timothy, carry on my ministry. Timothy, take this baton, hold on tight, run hard, carry on my kingdom ministry. Just as Joshua followed Moses, just as Elisha followed Elijah, so you must follow me, Timothy, carry on my ministry. And if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at one verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He writes this. He says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Let me stop right there. You hear what Paul is saying. Timothy, I have passed the baton to you. Now you pass the baton to others who will in turn be qualified to pass the baton to others. Let the relay of leadership continue, Timothy. Let the chain remain unbroken. The legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next. Now, um, I, I want to just tell you again uh, this morning, I am really honored to be here with you at, at Sherwood Oaks. And I came today really to say two things. The first thing I came to say is this, well done. 
you are doing this as a church. You are investing in that next generation. I love that video about uh, big brothers and big sisters and in your children's ministries and in your youth ministries. You are raising up that next generation of leaders. Somewhere in a nursery back there um, is, a, is a future elder getting his diapers changed right now, all right? And, and there are deacons and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders all back there eating their little animal crackers and you are doing this. You are investing in that next generation. So I just wanna commend you well done. But the second thing that I came to say to you this morning is this, and, and it's a very specific challenge. It's, it's the burden of this message here today. We must also be calling men and women into vocational Christian leadership. We as the church must be calling men and women into vocational Christian ministry, young men and women who will use their working lives to preach the word and to reach the lost and to lead the church. We must be passing that baton to the next generation of vocational Christian leaders. Now that, that is my life's passion. I'm a preacher and for the last 20 years I've also been a teacher of preachers. I am pouring my life at the Bible college into raising up that, that next generation. And I, and I do that. I give my life to that because I have a very deep conviction, and it's this. Preaching really matters. Now, to a lot of people in the world, that would seem like a pretty silly statement. Uh, you've probably heard the jokes about preaching. I've heard the jokes about preaching. Let me tell you a joke about preaching. You've probably heard the one about the, the preacher, the elder, and the deacon who went out uh, deer hunting. They're in the woods. Huge buck is crossing a clearing. The preacher and the elder both raise their rifles at the exact same time, fire simultaneously. The buck goes down, but they don't know which one of them shot the deer. Well, the deacon hops up, says, wait right here. I'll go look at the deer. I'll tell you who shot the buck. He runs across the clearing, examines the deer for a moment, stands up and hollers back. It's the preacher's buck. The preacher shot the deer. Well, the elder says, well, how, how do you know that? How, how can you tell? The deacon says, well, well, I can see right here the, the bullet went in one ear and right out the other. <laughs> and that's preaching to a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of a joke. It's a punchline, you know? Preaching's not really effective, you know? It doesn't make any real difference in the real world. But the Bible paints a different picture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this. He says that in his wisdom, God chose the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Did you hear that? God chose the foolishness of preaching to save the world. I teach preaching classes at the Bible college. I tell my preacher guys that when they, when they grab their Bibles on a Sunday morning and they begin to make their way to the pulpit, the seated out there in front of them, there is a, there is a broken heart in every pew. People struggle. Uh, probably somewhere near the back on that Sunday morning will be a, will be a college student who was uh, dragged there against his will that morning by his parents. And a little further up, there will be a tired mother of preschoolers and over here there is a high school teacher who is struggling with a difficult temptation. And over here, a high school sophomore and she's pregnant. And there's a businessman right back here who it seems like everything is crashing down. So discouraged, he thought about taking his own life that week. And right back there in her usual place, a grieving 
widow, broken heart in every pew. And when that preacher boy grabs his Bible and he makes his way to the pulpit and he puts his Bible down and and he deals his note cards out there on the pulpit like a riverboat gambler, I am telling you, the stakes have never been higher. Because the word of God has the power to absolutely transform every single one of those lives. Can Can I tell you when I'm reminded of this the most? It's when I'm preaching a bad sermon. Now, I'm sure this never happens to Tom, but to me and other preachers, sometimes you're preaching a lot and you can just tell, man, today it is not working. I am not connecting. It is just, it's, it's not communicating here today. And I had a friend in Bible college and uh, when he was a student, he went out um, one weekend to go preach at this little church and he could tell that morning the sermon was just a clunker. I mean, he knew it was bad. They knew it was bad, but church people are super nice. And so afterwards in the lobby, everybody's shaking his hand as they're leaving. Oh, nice job, nice job, nice sermon, nice job. One lady said, nice try. <laughs> I have been there, all right? I have preached my share of nice try sermons, okay? And on those mornings when it is just not working, I just want to kind of get out of there as fast as I can. I'll just try again next week. Just let me go home, all right? But God, in his great celestial sense of humor, will often give me my best response to my worst sermons. I mean, you know, we're singing the invitation song and I just want to sing one verse because, you know, I want to get out of there as fast as I can be to hasty retreat. But no, people are walking down the aisle. Folks are making decisions for Christ. Here's some lady, she's shaking my hand and she's saying, oh, you, you have no idea how that touched me. And I'm thinking, you're right. I have no idea how that touched you, you know? And yet, and yet, if I'm honest, I do know how it touched her because if I have been faithful to God's word, then even if my words were terribly ineffective, God's word is still divinely effective. The promise of Isaiah chapter 55, God says, my word which goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God's word is powerful. I love, I love what one preacher says, a preacher named Leonard Sweet says, that on the front cover of his Bible, he has engraved the letters TNT because he says this book is a stick of dynamite. He said this this book, it can explode old habits. It can blast sinful fixations. It It can detonate new devotion. This book can release enough energy to move any mountain and mend any life. And he's, he says, he says, if I hear one more time some Christian sigh and say, oh, well, you know, the church just can't compete with Hollywood. He says, I'm gonna twist somebody's tongue. He says, it's Hollywood that cannot compete with the holy word. Nothing on earth can compare with the power of God's word to transform lives. And when that preacher boy grabs his Bible and he makes his way to the pulpit on that Sunday morning, oh, physical eyes, they may just see some guy getting up, you know, they're ready to monologue for 30 minutes from some 2,000-year-old dusty old book. But spiritual eyes see something different. Because I'm telling you that as that stubborn college student sits there and, and, and that, that troubled teenager and that tempted teacher, I'm telling you that at that moment there are 10,000 angels leaning over the balconies of heaven and they are holding their breath wondering what will happen if this time these souls really hear. And at that moment there are 10,000 demons glaring up through the gates of hell licking their lips hoping that no one will pay attention. The air is charged with supernatural possibilities because all of heaven and all of hell knows that at that moment eternity literally hangs in the balance. And if that word that is preached, if it is humbly received, those lives will never be the same. 
Proud hearts will be broken. Wounded spirits will be bound up. Spiritual adrenaline will surge through weary souls and those life trajectories will be forever altered. Eternal destinies forever changed. And when, when a young man, when a preacher, when he grabs that Bible and he heads to the pulpit, he is a combatant in the battle of the ages. The entire cosmos is watching. There is nothing greater that you could do with your life. Preaching really matters. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save the world. All of which means this. We need more preachers. We need more youth ministers. We need more missionaries. We need more church planters. We need more men and women who will give their lives to taking this word to a world that needs to hear it. Now, now you, you understand demographics, and so you know that right now in American history, um, the baby boomer generation, massive generation, is nearing retirement, stepping into those retirement years, all of which means there is an entire generation of ministers and missionaries who are finishing their leg of the race. They are preparing to retire. My question, who will take their place and you understand that we, the church, are not just called to supply ministers and missionaries at a replacement rate. We're supposed to be you know, supplying them at a growth rate. It's not just to keep the ranks filled. It's to increase their tribe. You remember Matthew chapter 9. Jesus, looking out over the crowd, says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it says that Jesus' heart was moved with compassion. And he turned to his, his disciples and he said, he said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to, to raise up, to send out workers into his harvest field. I call that the lost and found text because the world is lost. More evangelistic leaders must be found. Uh, I brought a quiz with me here this morning. I'm, I'm a teacher. It's what I do. And four questions. Let's see how well you do. All right? Here's question number one. In the state of Indiana, there is one Christian church for every 10,000 people. Now, if we wanted to reach that same ratio in the New York City metro area, how many churches would need to be planted? Answer, 2,000. Who will plant those churches? Question two. There are about 6,500 languages in the world. How many of those languages have no portion of Scripture translated? Answer, 4,000. Who will translate those scriptures? Question number three. Of the 16,000 people groups, ethnic groups in the world, how many of those are unreached? In other words, less than 2% of that people group is Christian. Answer, almost 7,000. Who will reach those people groups? Last question. How many people die around the world without Christ every minute? Answer, 62. Every second, someone going into a Christless eternity. Who, who will reach those people for Christ? The harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few. And so my question this morning for your church is this, are you passing the baton? Who is your Timothy? Are you raising up the next generation of kingdom leaders? 
Can I, can I take the, the last minutes that I have here today and can I give you just three practical suggestions on how you can pass the baton to that next generation of kingdom leaders? I'm gonna frame these up as three questions. Here's the first question. Will you say something? Will you say something? When you spot a, a potential kingdom leader, would you plant a little seed thought in their, in their head? Now that might be, it might be a mid-career person that God is calling into ministry. It might be a young person. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's that A-plus kid in the youth group because God's mission in the world deserves the best and brightest. We need the cream of the crop leading the kingdom of God. But I'm also reminded of what President George W. Bush once said when he was speaking at a commencement address. Um, I believe it was at his alma mater at Yale. And as he was speaking commencement ceremonies, he said to all of you A students who are graduating with honors, I say, congratulations. To all of you C students, I say, you too could be president of the United States. <laughs> and you know what? It might not be the A-plus kid. It might be, it might be that, that squirrely kid. It might be that super rowdy kid in, in the youth group. God has a habit of choosing the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Wherever you find that kingdom potential, would you just plant a little seed thought in that, in that person's head? D.P. Schaefer was a preacher in Connettville, Pennsylvania, 80 years old, still preaching away. And on a youth Sunday, they had a, a little first grader who came up on stage as part of the service and he quoted a, a huge portion of John chapter 14 from memory. And afterwards, D.P. Schaefer went up and he, he patted that little uh, first grader on the head and he said, wow, that was, that was really great. He said, you'd make a good preacher someday. Well, that little boy never forgot those words. That little boy's name was Bob Russell who went on to go preach at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky for 40 years, grew that church to 20,000 and more. And, and would you say something? Because your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Question number two, will you pray something? Will you pray something? By all means, plant that seed thought, but you know what the very best thing you can do for that uh, promising uh, kingdom leader, uh, the very best thing that you could do for them is pray for them. Pray that God would call them into ministry if that's his will for their life. Pray for them by name. That's what Jesus told us to do there in Matthew chapter nine. He said, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Are you, are you praying that? On your way out this morning, you're gonna see a little table in the lobby and there's a, a pop-up banner with those Christian college on it and I'd love for you to take some of the literature off that table but what I would especially love for you to take is one of these I have a whole bunch of these little um, keychain tabs and on that keychain tab are these words just one and that is meant to be a prayer reminder would you pray for just one person by name to hear the call of God into the harvest field um I have one of these on my keychain, and every time I see it, I pray for a young man named Jonathan Nunez. He's 16, he lives in my uh, city, and a great kid, kind of rough family background, but man, he's just got a great heart. I see leadership potential in this guy, and, and I, I want the Lord to call him into ministry, and so I'm, I'm praying for him. Who, who would be your just one? Who would, who would you pray for? Would you pick one of those up and let that remind you? Can, can I tell you my testimony here this morning? When I was growing up, I... I always knew I was supposed to be a preacher. Seventh grade, every Sunday, the ritual was the same. 
My hometown preacher, we called him Brother Bill, um, every Sunday, Brother Bill would stand at the back door and he'd shake everybody's hands as they would leave church. And seventh grade, uh, when it was my turn to, to shake Brother Bill's hand, the ritual was always the same. He'd always ask me the same two questions. He'd, he'd grab my hand and, uh, and he'd say, Matt, he'd say, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'd say, a preacher. <laughs> Puberty's a killer, man. And... Uh, and he'd say, where are you going to go to college? And I'd say, Ozark Christian College. And he'd say, that's my boy. And he'd slap me on the back and he'd send me out the door. And I just grew up knowing I was supposed to be a preacher. But when, when I got into high school, I got sidetracked. I was, I was a very good student, National Merit Scholar in high school. And I got a, a big academic scholarship to the University of Iowa. And so I scrapped all my uh, plans for Bible college and all my plans for ministry. And I enrolled at the University of Iowa as a journalism major. Tom Brokaw went to the University of Iowa. I was going to go be the next Tom Brokaw, make my name, fame, fortune in the world. And, and I was being a Jonah. I was running away from God's call on my life. And that, that year at the University of Iowa was not a good year for me spiritually. I was a prodigal son in a far country, not living under the lordship of Christ. But after that year, I, uh, I got a job working at um, a Christian summer camp. It was a summer camp where I um, grew up. I had fond memories there. I was, uh, you know, the, the wood chopper, grass cutter, trash picker upper, dishwasher guy, and I liked working outside. And every night at this uh, camp, they would have a chapel service for the kids. And I would always go stand in the back of the chapel service during the, the worship time, because I kind of liked the worship bands. I thought the music was pretty cool. But when the preacher would get up to preach, I would leave. Didn't want to hear it. You know, didn't want to be convicted. But during the ninth grade week of camp, the preacher for the week was this little guy named Bob Martin. Now, Bob Martin was like 5'2", five, 5'3", five, just a little guy, and not what you think of as a dynamic youth speaker, never going to stand on stage, preach to a thousand teenagers or anything like that. But I'm telling you, that ninth grade week of camp, when Bob Martin would get up to preach, I'd be standing in the back, and I couldn't leave. His words just reached out, and they grabbed a hold of me, and, and I was... Galvanized, and all week long, the Holy Spirit just began to do this, this blitz on my heart. And, and if you've ever been to a week of church camp, you know how the last night of camp always goes. They always offer an invitation time. It's super emotional. There's all these crying junior high girls that come down the aisle, and they, you know, rededicating their life to Jesus for the 17th time, you know, and, and that's just how it is. I'm right. I'm just right, Okay. And this week of camp was no different. Last night, you know, they're offering the invitation time, super emotional, whole little herd of these little ninth grade, you know, weeping girls comes down the aisle and standing right in the middle of them was one college freshman guy. And I stood up in front of that camp and I just had to repent. I had to confess that I had been running away from God's call on my life and run away from God. And it was time for me to get right. And for me, that meant going to Bible college and being a preacher. Now, what I did not know at the time, I found this out later, is that Bob Martin, he knew my story. He knew I was being a Jonah. Because what I did not know at the time, I found this out later, was that my hometown preacher, Brother Bill, was Bob Martin's brother-in-law. <laughs> he had totally ratted me out, man. He told on me. And, uh, and what I did not know at the time, but I found this out later, was that Bob Martin had fasted that entire week. And he had prayed every single day for me by name. And I absolutely believe that one of the reasons I'm standing here this morning is because Bob Martin prayed me back into the kingdom and prayed me right into ministry. 
Now the question I'm asking you this morning is this, who is it that needs you to pray them into ministry? Will you pray for just one? Because your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Last question, will you pay something? Will you pay something? Now, I'm a Bible college president. You were expecting me to talk about money. That is what I do. A big portion of my job description is, is I, I raise funds. That's what college presidents do. And, 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 you know, in fact, they say that when a Bible college president dies, the verse they put on his tombstone is Luke 16, 22. And then the beggar died. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and you know what? People sometimes say to me, man, that, that, I could never do that. Go around asking people for money. And I'll be honest, I did not grow up wanting to be a professional fundraiser. But I believe in our mission. I believe in raising up men and women to take the gospel to the world. And if asking for money helps accomplish that mission, I'll ask for money eight days a week. And when you invest in the next generation of kingdom leaders, that has a huge return because they will reach someday, who knows, hundreds, maybe thousands for Christ for eternity. Last story. Um, You may not know the name, uh, Dr. Gilbert Bilizekian a theology professor at a Christian college up around Chicago, Dr. Gilbert um, Bilizekian, his students call him Dr. B, would lecture every day in class on the given you know, theological subject, but he would always leave a few minutes at the end of the hour, and he would close up his, his folder and step around to the front of the lectern, and he would just dream out loud with his students about the church. That was his passion. Oh, students, God's idea called the church. The church is the hope of the world. Have you read Acts 2? Students, when, when, when people love each other so deeply, they would sell whatever they have to take care of each other. When, when they boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus, when they welcome in wounded people and, and help bind them up, a hospital for sinners. Oh, thousands were added to their number daily, students. Oh, the church is so powerful. And he would just bleed this vision out on the students. And one semester, he had a 20-year-old young man seated right here in the front row. And when Dr. B was, was just casting this vision for God's idea called the church, this young man's heart just about beat out of his chest. And afterwards, he came up to Dr. B and he said, Dr. B, with God's help, I want to plant a church like that one in Acts 2. That young man's name was Bill Hybels, who went on to go plant a church called Willow Creek Community Church up around Chicago, flagship church in our country. Now, now just a few years ago, Willow Creek there in Chicago wanted to hold a combined Easter service. They have 20, 30,000 people go to their church. But they wanted to be in one service, and so they rented the United Center there in Chicago where the Bulls play. And as everybody came in that morning for this Easter service, they were given a little keychain with a flashlight on it. And at the very end of the service, after the sermon of worship and communion, the very last thing they did, the worship director at the church, Nancy Beach is her name, got up on stage and she said, now, we want to do one more thing. She said, could someone get the lights? And say they had someone back there at the bank of lights, boom, 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 all huge lights go out, the arena is dark. And she says, now, if you came to know Jesus Christ because of the ministry of Willow Creek, if this church introduced you to Jesus, would you turn on your flashlight? And at first, you know, a few dozen lights wink on and then hundreds and soon thousands of lights across this dark arena. Lives changed because of this church. And she said, now keep your lights on right now. We want to take a picture. And they took this this panoramic photograph with some kind of, you know, slow exposure to, to catch all of these points of light. Now, just as that 
photograph, panoramic picture was being taken. I don't know what the odds of this are, but someone right down here on the front row snapped a little flash photograph. And so you can actually see one face illuminated by that little flash. You can see one face in the picture seated right down here on the front row. You see the face of Dr. B. (laughs) And he is seated there on the front row and he is turned around with tears streaming down his face looking at all of these lives changed because just one student caught the vision, heard the call. Now, can I tell you what I hope will happen for you someday? When we get to heaven, I hope that Jesus will call all of the citizens of heaven together in some great big heavenly arena. And then I hope that he will call up onto stage that, that kingdom leader that, that you helped recruit, that you prayed for, that you paid for. And, and Jesus will say, now can someone get the lights? And somewhere they will shut the lights off, boom, boom, boom. And for just a moment, it will be dark in heaven. And then Jesus will say, he will say, now if you were influenced for me, for my kingdom, by this leader right here, would you let your light shine? And in heaven, we won't need flashlights, we'll just glow. <laughs> and you'll see dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of lights that will begin to shine across that whole arena. And what I hope for you is that you have a seat right there on the front row. And that as you are turned around with tears streaming down your cheek because of the influence of that just one, I hope that you will hear Jesus say, not just to that kingdom leader, but to you as well, well done, good and faithful servant. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do but someone you raise will you pass the baton let's pray Father God we thank you for those who shared the word with us but Lord we know there are so many more that still need to hear the word the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few raise up workers from this very church to take your word to the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.